1: following program is brought to you by your friends at podcast one
0: this is no excuses with
1: john taffer i'm john taffer best-selling author bar rescue guru and soon your new best friend I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Kapper. Here we go, Podcast One. It's uh, right after July 4th weekend and I had an opportunity. I have a bus, a huge RV, a tour bus, 45 foot, and Nicole, my wife and I, we drove up to the Canyonlands in Utah and then uh, out to Vail in Colorado and just... Took a little mountain cruise for a few days to sort of disconnect. And I got to tell you, it really worked. If you haven't been to the Canyonlands in Utah, you've got to do it. It's the most majestic, most incredible thing I've ever seen. It's truly worth a 10-hour drive even to go there. So if you're in Denver, if you're in Salt Lake City, if you're anywhere in that area of the country, make sure you go to Canyonlands. It's really, really special, and it shows what a treasure uh, America can be. So... July 4th is over, and we're all sort of getting back to the groove of summer. And uh, last night's Bar Rescue was, uh, I watched it. I don't get to watch a lot of them because I'm, I'm, I'm so busy taping them that more often than not I, I get to watch the cuts. And when we make Bar Rescue, what a lot of people don't know is uh, uh, we have about 200 hours of video time and uh, our editors go into an editing bay and they start editing it down and the first cut that we look at could be about ah, 60 minutes 65 minutes and then we edit it and edit it and edit it and we go through about eight cuts by the time we get to the final cut and the network myself our production company three ball everybody makes comments and refines it until the cut tells a story uh, uh, um that is indicative of what happened so so Characters who are more important in the story become more important in the cut. Characters who are unimportant in the story become less important in the cut. And that's how the story is told. And uh, uh, I get to watch the cuts, of course, because I have to to provide comments. But uh, I don't get to watch the show that often on TV, which is sort of a bummer uh, because it has a different energy when it's on TV. But last night, I actually got to watch it. And I watched a Back to the Bar that was taped, I guess, about a year ago. And it was emotional. I got to tell you, I teared up. First, Mark and Ozzy was an amazing story. And, and, you know, they had Badlands. And I opened this country nightclub for them. And they were doing so well. And then the landlord came in and the building was bought. And make a long story short, they had been together for uh, uh, almost eight years. And they were always waiting to get married, always waiting to get married. (laughs) Last night, and it was great, Mark proposed to Ozzy on Bar Rescue and she had no idea it was coming. This was all completely legit. And, she, and parents were there, and it was a great, great moment. But the most powerful to me was seeing JP and Edith again. Uh, uh, JP and Edith uh, at La Luz was the most emotional bar rescue I ever had. And I know I've told this story in the past, but I'll tell it really short. I got my SUV to do bar rescue. Edith, the wife, gets in the car with me. She's got a gift bag. She tells me she's... Got a gift for her husband for their 14th anniversary, and it was divorce papers. He then flirts with a girl. She goes in, slaps him, throws a drink in his face, rips his shirt out, gives him the divorce papers, and that was the first night of Bar Rescue. For the next three days, I don't think I ever beat anyone up as much as I beat up JP because it really bothered me. Edith was a good woman. She had young children at home. He wasn't even coming home at night. His disrespect of Edith really bothered me, and I showed him. I later learned that I was the only person in his life that had ever spoken to him that way because he was a pretty tough guy and he came close as he said in last night's Back to the Bar to kicking my ass. But something happened at the end of that episode. I saw it in J.P.'s face. There was a moment that didn't make the episode of Bar Rescue when J.P. pulled me aside and said, listen, I want you to know And he started crying, you're the father I never had. And what you did for me, and it, it, it beat me up in all the right places. He goes, thank you. And then they talked about last night that he had sent me a letter, and he did, and he sent me a letter, and he sent the Dominican Republic. And JP is a very ethical and honorable man, and sent me a note and said, "Do you ever need anything?" Blah blah blah. And it was about four pages. It was one of the most personal notes I've ever received. And the show ended with Edith and JP tearing up the divorce papers. Edith putting on her her wedding band and going back on. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me in Bar Rescue was about three months after the episode shot. Now I left and I haven't heard from anybody. I got an email. JP and Edith are having their fourth child. And uh, uh, that was really exciting. So they're doing great. and It was wonderful to see them, but quite emotional. And if you look at JP, what you can see is a man who's been overtaken by the pressures of life, a really good guy who got in a bad place. And so many Bar Rescues are that. If you didn't get a chance to see last night's episode... It's on the Paramount website. I'm sure it'll air before this week's episode as they normally do. So the episode that was new this week will run before the new episode next week. Make sure you watch this one. It's really, really emotional with one of my favorite couples, J.P. and Edith, ever in Bar Rescues. So uh, those of you who think Bar Rescue isn't emotional to me, it is. Every episode when I can move somebody's life or affect... Somebody like I did, JP or Edith, or to think that I might have prompted a marriage between Mark and Ozzy. These are the greatest moments of Bar Rescue. They mean far more than any check, any television rating or anything. Those are the things that feel really, really good. So I got to congratulate Travis Pastrana. And if you don't know this, he went yesterday and he did a motorcycle jump, three of them at Caesar's Palace that was just really unbelievable. He used an Indian Scout FTR 750 motorcycle to jump 143 feet to clear 52 crushed cars. Now, Evil Knievel crushed 50 cars. So Travis crushed 52. Then he flew 192 feet over 16 Greyhound buses. Evil had done 15 Greyhound buses in 1975 at Ohio King's Amusement Park, then he cleared the fountains at Caesar's Palace, which Evil didn't do. And if you look on YouTube or online, you'll see the video, Evil Knievel tried to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace and didn't make it. Went down, went over the the handlebars, broke God knows how many bodies, and he was out of service for quite a while after that. So Travis, in the later years of his life, as he's about to retire, actually did this and broke these records, uh, which is really amazing when you think about accomplishment. You know, we all try so hard to to make more money, make more friends, get more out of life and what we do. And, And, you know, you hear about a guy who's truly risking his life to do so. And I've often thought about, you know, the astronauts that sit on top of those rockets that could explode at any moment, or Travis as he's going up that ramp, and how accomplishment and purpose is worth all that risk to them. And how the risk pays off To him in his way. Now, you might watch that and say, anybody who does that is a nutcase to risk their lives uh, uh, to jump a fountain at Caesar's palace. What's the point of that? Well, the point is his, not yours. And if it's an accomplishment that is powerful to him that he wants to achieve, hats off to him for achieving it. And when you consider the risks that he took to achieve it, hats off again, really, really remarkable. So, Travis... You now beat Evil Knievel's records. And I'm curious to see if anybody else tries to beat yours. I was reading a, an article about Amazon the other day that was fascinating. Amazon's program for underperforming employees includes a courtroom-style video conference with a jury of peers. Imagine this for a moment. If you have a performance issue at Amazon, according to this program, which is called the Pivot Program. Employees who are put on a performance improvement plan have three options. You can quit and receive severance pay. You can spend the next couple of months providing, proving your worth by meeting certain performance criteria set by your manager. So you're on a uh, prove it or go program. Or you can face a panel of peers in a courtroom style video conference in which the employee And his boss present arguments about whether the employee should stay in the program or not. Here's what's interesting. 70% of the employees lose the trials, meaning they must choose between the first or the second. So either they have to quit and receive severance pay, or they got to spend the next couple of months reproving their self-worth to the company. And I find it interesting because employees get to choose either one manager or three non-managers as their jury. So imagine this. You're one of those three employees chosen. The employee who, who is up for trial, I'll call it, in a pivot program, uh, is arguing with the manager. You want to get ahead in the company. Well, aren't you going to take the company's side in those situations? How often are employees going to take the side of the employee in those type of a situation? So you know, they said it was bizarre to have three jurors who may have no previous experience ever interacting with the person that, th- that they're with. And it's a popularity contest. So one of the people who wrote the article said the interaction with jurors <laughs> is really the jurors trying to get brownie points with their boss. So the employee is in a 70 percent. I'm going to lose this battle situation, which means either they have to quit and take severance pay or be put in a class in a pivot program where they're forced to prove themselves every day. That isn't human resources as I know it. And, and you know, I have a real issue with providing that type of power to three employees in a political environment where siding with the company benefits them greater than siding with the employee. That whole process seems to be a little unreasonable to me, and I think that Amazon should take a look at that and determine a process that that is more inspiring to cause improvement and doesn't cause uh, such an unfair outcome so many times. You know, it's interesting, we were talking about Travis and uh, his jump over caesar's palace fountain and and the accomplishment and the risks that he took to achieve that goal and we hear about these things all the time people clowning mount everest people going ballooning across the ocean people flying and doing this and people risk their lives all the time for the silliest of things type of walking across office towers climbing buildings climbing rocks and and it's a choice that people make and it's the most inspiring choice of all, even though the average person wouldn't do it. I'm not going to risk my life to climb a building. But the fact that someone will inspires us all. That's why we watch it. These exceptional people who take exceptional risks to achieve exceptional things create an opportunity for us all to be exceptional. And if that exceptionalism is taken away before it starts, if people perpetuate an averageism over an exceptionalism, I think we all suffer. And I read an article just the other day from Business Insider that I so disagreed with, it was incredible. And the article said, the most successful people know a truth about quitting most of us don't understand. This was an article written by a girl by the name of Shana Leibowitz in Business Insider. And she goes on to talk about the New York Times addresses a phenomena in a recent article on strategic quitting. Now, that's an interesting term. So it's a term borrowed from author and entrepreneur Seth Grodin. And it talks about how we have to stop pursuing lifetime goals that have proven unattainable. Okay, now wait a minute. I can't run 10 miles. I know that's unattainable, so I'm not going to try. If it's unattainable, then we shouldn't do anything. Travis shouldn't have jumped the fountains. Nobody should do anything that is unattainable. So I don't understand the point of strategic quitting. Strategic quitting is saying, stop doing something that is unattainable and do something that is attainable. Isn't that life? Is that something that we need a book or an article about? And then it goes on to say that the author shakes readers until they understand that there is no way they can achieve everything they want to. Tell that to Travis. Tell that to people who do achieve the things that they want to. And then it goes on to say, and this is fascinating to me, that the author, Akuf, tells readers to choose in advance what they're going to fail at and to be okay with that. The logic here is that the more thinly you spread your time and energy, the less progress you make towards each. It seems impossible to become an expert in one area without giving up on some others. I think that is just completely absurd. So this whole premise is that you should walk away from things that are infeasible or unattainable. Well, we all agree with that. If it's unattainable, don't waste your time on it. If it's something that you know can never be accomplished by you or anyone else, don't do it. That isn't quitting, that's being smart. Now, if it's something that you can attain, then understand that you're seeking exceptionalism, not averageism. An article in a premise like this that says, you know, you should do strategic quitting is suggesting Right from the gate, I can't accomplish everything I want to in life. I can't be an expert in more than one thing in life. I can't, I shouldn't, I can't, I shouldn't, I can't, I shouldn't. And everything about this premise I completely disagree with because I suggest that you can. If it's attainable, then you can. If it's attainable by anyone, why not you? So in an article, and an author puts together an entire package on understanding your limitations before you start being prepared to quit before you start understanding what is not attainable before you start to me that is a bunch of crap negativism that takes exceptionalism and turns it into averageism stop thinking about the things that we can't do and start thinking about the things that are attainable the things that excite us that's what the future is all about, what we can attain. So, when people put all of their effort into strategic quitting and, and breaking away from what you can't attain, and you know, I think it's lunacy. And sometimes, and maybe you've heard me say this before, sometimes the naysayers need to shut up so that the yaysayers can get it done. Because if we always listen to the naysayers, we wouldn't have iPhones today. We wouldn't have the technologies today. I think that the most successful people know a truth about quitting most of us don't understand. I think it's a crock of bullshit. So there's my first shut it down bullshit bust in all of my No Excuses podcasts. And don't let anybody shoot down your ideas. Don't let anybody ever suggest to you that you're average before you even start. That's ridiculous. Everything is attainable until you've been proven that it's not So that's my heavy rendition for today. But I got a fun one here. This is actually really great. When I saw this, I had to bring this to you and read this to you. So apparently there's a problem in England with seagulls getting drunk. And the article goes on to say, according to Devon Live, which is a a writer, a a news service out there, firefighters were called to Dorset, England, to rescue a seagull who had fallen off a roof and couldn't fly. According to reports, the seagull smelled like beer and vomited on the firefighters. The bird was not the only victim. Three others were also taken to the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So they actually (laughs) had to put a public notice out that you shouldn't leave your beer containers open on the beach because of intoxicated seagulls. And I'm guessing if drinking and driving is bad, can you imagine what drinking and flying would (laughs) would be like? I'm guessing this pretty funny sight. Years ago, I used to live on a lake outside of Chicago, and the lake used to freeze, and I used to watch the geese come land in the wintertime, and they'd smash on the ice and go sliding across the lake into trees and rocks and stones, and I wonder if they weren't drunk. Anyway, I have an amazing guest with me this week, and I'm extremely excited to have Spike because, uh, uh, A, he's a car guy. I'm a car guy. I love talking about cars. I love talking about TV. Spike is a TV guy and I love talking about some of the shows and things that he's worked on. So, this is one of the greatest guests I could ever have and when I read you Spike's bio, you're going to be blown away cuz as great as I knew he was, I had no idea the depth of Spike's work. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No excuses. With John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Hi, Tiguan. Hab mit Fußgängererkennung gestern für Karin gebremst. Die war froh. Glückwunsch, Polo. Ich hab jetzt mit Assist Plus geholfen, die Spur zu wechseln. Oh, T-Rock. Wir wissen, dass du mit Assist super einparkst. Aber musst du dich immer zwischen uns quetschen? So sind sie, die IQ Drive Sondermodelle. Sehen gut aus und sind dazu noch intelligent. Mit bis zu 3400 euros Preisvorteil. Assistenzsysteme arbeiten im Rahmen ihrer Systemgrenzen. Jetzt Probefahren. Volkswagen.
0: Tapper's back. This is No Excuses with John Tapper.
1: I'm incredibly excited to have Spike here. And, Spike, you're going to blush, but I got to do this, buddy, because I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I loved uh, uh, your comedy car show, Matchmaker. Every time I guessed wrong, I couldn't get over it. But I got to read your <laughs> bio because I want people to understand the depth of what you've done. First of all, you're a Massachusetts boy, so you're an East Coast boy like me. You started as a receptionist at Saturday Night Live. Then in 1990, became a full staff writer for Late Night with David Letterman, where you earned five Emmy nominations. I got to continue this. In 95, you left the Late Night team to join the writing staff for Seinfeld, where you wrote for three seasons, including the famous Nazi, Soup Nazi episode, and you won three Emmys there. Then in 2006, you went to Fox to host your own Late Night series, which was killer, by the way, and you produced that. Then you've written other television shows from The Simpsons, Space Ghost, The Jamie Kennedy Experiment. Now you're continuing to work with Jerry Seinfeld. You co-wrote B Movie and the 2012 Accurate NSX Super Bowl commercial. And, and now uh, you, you, you're, I'm guessing, pursuing your passion with cars. But Spike, I am a huge fan, buddy. I have loved your work for so many years. It's an honor to have you here.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. And I, I hear a lot a lot about you from my friend Kevin K. Who, uh, uh, well, Kevin Spike is, is the, the president Paramount of Spike. Yep.
2: <laughs> so,
0: about how well your show does for them and how much money you're making them. I hope I you're am. getting some of that money for yourself.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Funny, when, when Paramount launched, I went to the opening party, and uh, uh, somebody said to me, Kevin, Doug Herzog had said to me at the time, thanks for keeping the lights on for all these years. That's yes, how much sir. Bar Rescue That's runs. That's
0: right. But, That's, the uh, word. That's the word out here. <laughs>
1: yep. You know, years ago, I, I was very close to Kelsey Grammer, and I used to go to the writing room at Frasier, and they'd have pillows on the floor, and these guys would be laying around the floor, and there'd be food and wrappers everywhere, and they'd be there at 2, 3 in the morning in the writing rooms. And I always thought that was the coolest job in the world, in those writing rooms. And, and how did you transition from receptionist at Saturday Night Live to writer for Letterman?
0: Um, I was writing jokes uh, as you probably have guessed, I didn't really want to be a receptionist. I just wanted <laughs> a job close to the show I love, Saturday Night Live and, and then uh, David Letterman. So while I was there answering phones and doing my job to the best of my ability, um, <laughs> I was also writing jokes for Dennis Miller, uh, who was hosting Weekend Update. And eventually yeah. he started doing those jokes, and eventually people started taking notice. and I was, uh, you know, invited to uh, do submissions for David Letterman, and and that's how it happened.
1: Very different comedy, because Dennis is sort of more intelligent, uh, uh, linguistic kind of comedy, if you will. Very different from Letterman's approach, right?
0: That's true. That's true. And, you know, if I uh, think about way back then, I, I was in college, and I was watching Letterman every night, so that really was the target for me. Saturday Night Live was my favorite show growing up so when i'm 10 or 12 years old we would watch it every saturday night and die so you know i had i think because of my dad i had a pretty broad uh exposure to comedy and that's you know everything from the marx brothers to you know the monty python guys Saturday Night live jerry lewis just a ton you know george carlin albums it you know, I, in some ways, you know, and I never realized it. That was kind of the education that I, that, that my comedy education. So when, when it came time to just write anything, so you know, I liked Dennis. I thought he was hilarious. A lot of, a lot of guys weren't writing for him at that time, and I saw an opening, and I saw how they did it. I just kind of put it together, you know, in his voice. I was watching him. We can update every Saturday night, absorb the voice a little bit, and then started writing like that. And I'd really, I had no idea where it was going, and I had no idea that he was even going to do any of the stuff, and I was very surprised when the stuff not only went on the air, but got laughs. You
1: know? And, and, and <laughs> I got to take you, because you know, people try to do it for me sometimes, writing in somebody else's voice with their pace and their personality and their character is not an easy thing to do.
0: It's not, except when you're immersed in it. So... I, you know, I imagine I've never done one, but I've never done a foreign language immersion program of any kind. But when you're (laughs) around the comic or the person you're writing for and you're sort of a you're immersed in their world, it becomes a lot easier because you're seeing what they're doing and what they're rejecting and you're hearing them talk and you're kind of getting that voice in your head and. You know, I I don't know if I have, a, uh, or comedy writers in general, just have overdeveloped imaginations where they can, you know, hear the person's voice in their head and construct a line and then hear it done in their head, or if that's just part of what makes me crazy but serves me in the comedy writing world. (laughs) And then in my normal life, it's just called daydreaming and not paying attention.
1: So when you were working on Seinfeld, I gotta believe that, that that was a very collaborative process with everyone. Yes. And this is a very unfair question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, Spike. What was the most fun writing room you've ever been in?
0: You know, they were all great. My two favorites were the Letterman writing room and uh, and the Seinfeld writing room. They, See? you know, they were just. It was all about what was the funniest line, and there was a lot of camaraderie. And there were no pillows or 2 a.m. mornings. We weren't doing that nonsense. Everybody wanted to get out of there and have a life. But, um, you know, they uh, it trickles down from the top, just like a business, I guess, is, is, is you're in the world of business. And if you've got somebody who really appreciates comedy, has a good personality and makes for a fun office environment, that trickles down to the writer's room. So, you know, you lock up, you know, 12 funny people in a room and it's, It's like any dysfunctional family, but in general, it's pretty fun.
1: Was there a soup Nazi? Was there a person who that was mimicked after?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, these were two different styles of writing. On on Letterman, we would come in. It was a 9-to-5 job, let's say. So you'd come in in the morning. They'd say, all right, this is the top 10 list. Everybody write 25 of these jokes for the next hour, and then Dave needs monologue jokes for the next hour, and then let's start thinking about Act 1s and Act 5s for Thursday. We have holes here and there. Mm-hmm. And you'd get assignments all day long, and you'd, you'd probably knock off at around 7. On, um, and that was very collaborative. So you'd be writing a little bit by yourself, and then we'd get together three or four times during the day, the whole crew, and go, let's, let's uh, figure out some stuff to do for the rest of the week, because it's a very hungry engine that you have to shovel coal into constantly. On Seinfeld, you would write down – I remember I wrote maybe 10 to 20 one- or two-line ideas thoughts, little areas, things that had happened to me, and you would go in to pitch Larry and Jerry. You'd go in by yourself. They'd give you time to say, look, next Wednesday at 10, come on in, and you'd just tell stories. They, they weren't really fond of you making things up. They wanted to hear about a date that went wrong, or you were at a party, or you went to rent a car, and this happened, and here's what you wanted to do. And I had just spun out of uh, eight years in New York City. And as you know, New York is not the straightest city in the world that <laughs> i had. You know, a bunch of it. I said, look, a lot of weird stuff has happened to me. I I found a cheap parking lot where I found out that there was a pimp working at the front gate, letting hookers turn tricks in my car. And there's this weird soup seller uh, that we used to go to who has the best soup in the world, but he's a complete jerk, and they call him the Soup Nazi. And it was it was from all that the, came stuff the story that kind of made me uh, kind of made me a little nuts. I have a that I ended up story picking, I got to tell on you, TV.
1: which happened to me years ago, and a lot of people don't know this. Years ago, I was a licensee and a partner with the Vatican in Rome, believe it or not. And I and my partner had rights to to uh, the artifacts in the Vatican, and we could sell licenses for reproductions, adaptations of Michelangelo's and work in the Vatican. And I have this license, and I'm going to the Vatican all the time, and there's this restaurant behind one of the gates of the Vatican, uh, 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 at the back of the Vatican, and it's a restaurant that has about nine tables with 12 seat sheets in a straight row, four glass doors to walk in, no sign. And it's called the Fat Ladies. And that's what the priests and everybody who goes to this restaurant calls them. When you walk in this restaurant, there's this big fat lady who's got an apron on. And you know what's on the menu that day because it's all over her apron. And in the back corner of this restaurant is a stove and a refrigerator and a skinny little man who weighs about 80 pounds who's her husband. Now, this guy has what I call BMS spike, broken man syndrome. He walks, you know what I mean, hunched over. He moves slowly. Mm-hmm. This is a man who has serious BMS. And you'd sit down at the table. She would tell you what you're eating that day. There was no condiments, nothing like that. She would drop a bowl of the greatest pasta you've ever had in your life on the table. You're sitting in this communal row seating. And if she didn't like somebody, she wouldn't let him in. If she got frustrated, she'd lock the door in the middle of lunch and nobody else was served. If, if you didn't like what she was serving and you asked her to modify it, she would go crazy and throw you out. And she was the fat lady. And it wasn't only the fat lady that really impacted me. I learned all about the whole premise of broken man syndrome, eating in that restaurant, watching this poor man <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> and that was my soup Nazi story. I'll never forget it. I was in Rome. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've heard, I've heard many. I bet you When have. that episode came out, I, I started hearing about, is this based on the uh, uh, Philadelphia cheesesteak guy? <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Is it based on the Houston deli owner who, no, it's not based on him. Every I think every town <laughs> and city across America has their, their version of that guy.
1: Well, look, you know, some people prove that you can make money and a living being a dick. I mean, Bar Rescue has sort of proven that for me in a sense.
0: <laughs> well, you're, <laughs> you're the perfect money. guy to talk to about this, so... Obviously, you've seen the episode. You've seen the guy's demeanor. He, in real life, was a little meaner and a lot more vulgar than portrayed in the episode. Uh, You know, he's a little bit of a misogynist, let's say. You know, he would scream at people. He would also not just say no soup for you. He would swear and curse them out. And, you know, New York, people are giving it right back to him. Very interesting dynamic in the line. If he was yelling at you, after you didn't order your soup right, everybody in the line kind of turned away and pretended not to see it. It kind of socially ostracized the person yeah. who didn't get the soup, and they were just culled from the herd. They were they were sent away. Okay, so, now, so, so uh, what whenever did... I go back to New York, I go down there to get some of the soup. And it's now you go there. There's no line. The guy is gone, but it's his stand. It's his brand. It's his soups. There are two-legs. Like, surfer dude, they're like, hey, man, hey, you want some soup? they are super friendly.
1: <laughs> they and ruined the it. soup
0: doesn't taste as good to me anymore because the guys it. are nice.
1: So it's interesting. What, so being an asshole that? was a marketing gimmick in the end.
0: It was. I think it was because you had to perform the ordering routine perfectly and you were rewarded with this soup. And without <laughs> that, and I think that distracted you from the fact that maybe, sir, maybe the soup is not as good as we all thought. Right.
1: But it was such an accomplishment to get it that you just felt better about the soup exactly. as a whole.
0: Now <laughs> add winter and cold to the mix where you're freezing and you get this hot soup. He really figured it out. He really figured out how to make that work. But had he gone on your show, you would have told him to be nice to his customers. And that wouldn't work.
1: Maybe not. Maybe not. Have you always been a car guy?
0: Not really. I I mean I always liked them, but it wasn't it wasn't until I started working for Letterman and then Jerry where I think they noticed before me that I was a car guy, even before I really knew that I was. If that makes sense.
1: So have you seen Jerry's collection?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I drive drive those cars. I've known Jerry for a long time. So you know, when I I I bought this old 911 that uh Porsche 911 uh after Letterman told me, he goes, you're a Porsche guy. Somehow he knew this. I don't know how he knew it, but he said, go get an old 911. He let me drive some of his cars. And I bought this car for six grand. that I drove around New York, and I, I would have Earl Scheib painted a different color every year. I, I didn't know anything about cars, obviously, but I just liked that Earl Scheib had this ad. You could paint a car for $99. So every year I'd paint a different color and bomb around the city. So when I went to New York, I took that car, um, I mean, went to L.A. I took that car to Seinfeld, and I pulled it into the lot, and Jerry saw the car. And he said, well, he goes, that's the right car, but it's the wrong example. We need to get you into something new. And, you know, that was just, to to me, Jerry was just my boss. So it's like, well, do I have to go buy a new car now to work for this guy? I I don't understand. (laughs) That became this very funny kind of working relationship, Porsche relationship with Jerry.
1: Did you buy the new Porsche then?
0: Yes, I did get a. I got I got a few.
1: Spike, you're a guy who goes from exciting project to exciting project. Uh, what's next?
0: Well, the next iteration of Car Matchmaker that we're working on and, and figuring out right now has me very excited. But I uh, I started my own little small business, my own production company, a couple of years ago with uh, an old friend who was a former intern on Letterman who is in the unscripted side of television, as you and I have both worked, and uh, he's going to run unscripted, I'm going to run scripted, and, and, you know, we've set up shop down at Santa Monica Airport, and we're out uh, selling shows.
2: Wow,
1: congratulations, man.
0: But I'm really loving just playing playing executive, having another little place to incubate projects that maybe I can jump in front of the camera, or maybe I can write, or maybe I can just... Help conceive and help launch and have somebody else run, but I, I'm liking that measure of control over over uh, my work. Where you know, as you know before, it's it's a brutal business.
1: You know, it, it's the truth. For me, Spike, it's fascinating because I was a hotel guy. So I ran a huge resort upstate New York when I was younger. Ran and owned restaurants. Took companies mm-hmm. public ran and created one of the largest trade shows in America. I've done a lot of things. Seven years ago, I go into the television business. Now I'm executive producer of my own show. It is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. First of all, getting on TV is a bitch. Staying on TV is a bigger bitch,
0: right? Yes. Well, look look what happened to me. I thought I had seen it all in 20-plus years of television. And I have a hit car show that's a hit. But the network gets canceled. (laughs) That's That's unbelievable. I didn't know that was a possibility. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. We love your show, but we're canceling the network. It's funny
1: that you say that because I laugh because (laughs) Bar Rescue survived Spike.
0: Yeah, no, you did. Your network got transitioned. That's right. So you're going through the same thing. So you're
1: going to take that format to a new network. So you outlived the network, buddy.
0: <laughs> I outlived the network. No, I know. We're on NBC Sports right now. They're running repeats there. And we're 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 talking to them about doing new episodes of the show. I don't know that they're going to get their act together fast enough for that to happen. But I have uh, another little car format in the works that I'm super excited about. And, and we'll see what happens.
1: So so, what's your advice for someone getting into TV today? And I know this is a loaded question because it's so hard. You know, my career started with somebody looking at me and saying, John, you will never uh, uh, frickin' be on television. You're too old. You're not good looking. It'll never happen. That's how my TV career started. What do you say to the person who's told not to do it?
0: That's that's Well, you just highlighted one of my very first rules, which is there are no rules. I had a guy say that to me when I wanted to be a writer. You can't write. You don't know how to type. He was correct. I didn't know how to type. I said, well, what does that matter? <laughs> Writing is what comes out of your head. It's the idea. It's not how you get it down. I'll hire someone to type. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Don't listen. If you have this gut feeling you're supposed to do this, this little voice in your head like, uh, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, follow it for a little while and see where it goes. I have a couple other little rules, and it changes all the time. We, I was just discussing this with another friend of mine who's got a very successful law firm here in Los Angeles. Putting yourself in a city where things happen is also a good strategy. It is. Uh, he and I were talking about this, this uh, a, a woman he knows who was in the Go-Go's and hearing her story. Remember the band, the Go-Go's? Yep it 's in New York, L.A., Chicago, Miami, a place where things are happening and people are trying to do things, I think increases your odds of figuring out where you're going to go in life. And then when it comes to writing, you know, there's so many avenues open right now that weren't open before. And, you know, YouTube and all of these different platforms where you can write and edit and put your stuff together on your home computer and get it out there. And 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 you're new at it. And and new is attractive. You know, uh, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like you don't know anyone. But new is very attractive. And uh, by that, I mean, uh, Hollywood's constantly looking for new talent and and the next comedian or comedy writer to pop. And your entry point is right in front of you. It's uh, YouTube.com. It's Facebook Watch. It's any of these places where people, uh, their eyeballs and they're watching stuff. And you know, work and hone and and try to get some uh, try to get some viewership, and it should happen on its own. You know,
1: look at, look at YouTube stars today who who get almost instant fame because they've come up with it with an angle or a hook to their content that creates relevancy, and anybody yeah. can do that today. Yeah. And, years and, and, ago, you know, when you started in this business, just, you didn't yeah. have all these vehicles and these ways to get there. It Was much harder years ago. Don't you agree in that regard?
0: Yeah, you were completely isolated years ago. There was no yep. there's no way in. My my way – I don't know anybody in entertainment at all, and I'm tending bar at Legal Seafoods in Boston and going to college, you know, and I'm kind of paying my way through college there. And I meet uh, a new hostess who just came from New York, and she's wearing the yellow Letterman varsity jacket. And I just run up to her and I say, can you get me an internship on David Letterman? And she goes, yes. What is your name? Nice to meet you. <laughs> so that's, wow. that was my – tenuous little connection to entertainment was this, this girl who was our new hostess or cocktail waitress at Legal Seafoods. Nowadays, y- you post on YouTube, you post anywhere, you're in public. Anybody can see your stuff. And, 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 and you know, as we've seen, stuff goes viral and there you go. And, well, and we, why, do you, why we, do you need television for that? So,
1: you um, know, we're in a, we're in a really, content there's world There's a lot of
0: opportunity now. out there, especially in scripted.
1: We're in a content world now. And and creating yeah. content and owning that content and being able to find ways to distribute that content is really uh, uh, one of the largest industries in the world now. And, and it is. you are the master of content, buddy. When when you look at yeah. all the writing that you've done and the production work that you've done, you know, you've really mastered the content business. And and I think that your message is really powerful, Spike. You know, there are no rules. If, if people out here want to accomplish something, do it. You know, I went into TV when I was 50 years old. Uh, uh, and started a whole new career you went from receptionist at Saturday Night Live an internship from being from working in, in illegal seafoods so I think the moral of the story is Ask for the opportunity and seize the opportunity don't say no to yourself before someone else does Never create the know yourself make somebody else stop you don't ever get stopped before you start would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: That's that it, buddy. Is it. So I want to promote your 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 spikes car radio podcast on Podcast One, and listeners can get more information at Podcast One dot com spikes dash car dash radio. And Spike, where can I find you on social media?
0: Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but I mostly respond on Instagram so, uh, at Spike and That's where I'm pretty much in touch with fans and talk to people from around the world. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to
1: spell that so everybody gets show. it. Spike Ferrison, F-E-R-E-S-T-E-N. Buddy, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Yeah, pleasure talking to
1: you too. So learning from Spike, tis no strategic quitting. There's only pursuing your goals with every bit of aggression that you can possibly have. Well, now it's my favorite part of the show. I love talking to you guys. So I've got a couple of callers. I have no idea what they're going to tell me, but whatever they say, we're going to go with. Who do we got? Shut it
2: John, we have Jordan from Napoleonville, Louisiana. He's a high
1: school band leader who wants advice on being a young adult leader. Hey, Jordan. Hi, Mr. Tapper. How are you doing, sir? Good. So you're the band director at a high school in Louisiana. Yes, sir. And it's interesting what your situation is. So all of your student leaders graduate every year so your new student leaders are new to their position every year or two Is I'm guessing what happens.
2: So Yes, there most of what uh, I've had most of my senior leaders uh, from last year. They, they had been around for a couple of years. So there was already that sense of stability of uh, strong leadership. And most of them had uh, graduated at the end of last and graduated in May. And so now most of my student leaders now, our are, uh, are new leaders And so uh, my question to you was,, um, what, what type of advice do you have for, for those young adult student leaders who are brand new to their positions?
1: You know, first of all, any uh, um, anytime if you knew who those student leaders were last year, I would put the burden upon the exiting student leaders to help train and inspire the new student leaders. And I would affect some kind of a turnover if you can. But you might not always know who those leaders are. Here's what I teach. Leadership isn't something that's given. Leadership is something that's earned. We do extra things to become leaders. We lead by example. We always provide a positive message. We always contribute. Leaders bubble up to the top because they're inherently examples. Yes, and sir. Students that are leaders have to know that they are now the example, which means they have to get there first, leave last. They have to be the first to volunteer for projects. They have to be that example. And people follow examples far more than they follow, uh, titled leaders. That would be my suggestion.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I definitely appreciate the advice. I know my students will definitely, have been an inspiration for me personally, just uh with your passion for your business and that uh, uh, no nonsense attitude to make sure I get the best out of my students.
1: Uh well thanks. So you, you're obviously a great teacher and if you can inspire them to be examples, boy, that's gonna transcend to every aspect of their lives. You know, that would really uh, uh put you in a position to, to to touch them in a way that goes even past the music, which I know is your goal. Jordan, a pleasure.
2: Yes sir. John, we've got Dan from Orange County who wants to know what signs to look out for at a bar restaurant that it's bad.
1: You know, it's funny. I'm reading your note, Daniel, and, and it seems like every you wrote every failing bar I go into has a dirty, filthy kitchen. And, and you know, you, you what are the tip-offs that you shouldn't eat there? You know, it's it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it, Danny, because it's worth talking about. You know, if the front of the house isn't right, the back of the house is a nightmare. And sometimes I'm shocked at the level of irresponsibility. But if they're irresponsible in the kitchen and irresponsible in the front of the house, it starts in the parking lot. Is the parking lot clean? Is it organized? Are the bushes trimmed? Is there trash and cigarette butts everywhere? Start with the outside. Then walk up to the front door. Is the front door clean? Is it properly uh, detailed? Does it look professional? Next, you're gonna make your decision in the next, really, three minutes. When you walk through the front door, how does it smell? That's really, really important. Bacteria, yeast, dirt smells. How does it smell? When you sit down at the table, if the salt and pepper shakers are greasy on the outside and you can feel they've never been wiped down, leave. When they give you a menu, if the menu is all dirty and sticky with fingerprints all over it, leave. If you sit down in a chair or a table that's sticky and dirty, leave. If they pull out a rag to wipe it that isn't in the right solutions and they're not using the right cleaning materials and they're using dirty towels on tabletops, leave. If you ask a server what is in a food item and they don't know it, and they seem to be not trained, remember, if a waitress isn't trained, the cook probably is even le- less trained. Leave. So maintain your standards of the way a place should look on the outside, the way it should smell when you walk in, the way salt and pepper shakers, tables and chairs should feel, the way menus should feel and look. And those are great indicators of what will happen in the back of the house. If any of those things happen, Daniel, you leave, buddy, okay? Thank you so much, John. Take care. Uh,
2: Shane, you there? Yes, sir. All right. Hi, Shane. So, John, Shane is a muralist. He's looking to expand into Vegas hotels and casinos, and he wants to know how he should do it.
1: Boy, that's a great question. You know, uh, growing your business is obviously really important. And if you're an artist and a muralist, the only way you can really grow is to grow geographically, have a bigger universe of clients and people that you work with. I've had two friends who have been pretty successful in this business. One was a gentleman by the name of Michael Grosser who used to do these murals in bars, and they would call him Spray and Pray. And he would do murals and theme bars and restaurants, and he was a great muralist. The other was an artist by the name of Steve Kaufman who was a dear friend of mine whose artwork hangs all over Vegas because he created his style. Uh, uh, that fit very, very well in Vegas, a little Andy Warholish. Let me give you two pieces of advice, Shane, that I think will help. One, you want to get in front of the the decision makers, the people who are actually making design decisions and appearance decisions for Las Vegas hotels and casinos. You can go in one of two ways. And I live here in Las Vegas, so I know all the people that you're talking about that you want to meet, many of my friends. We're all involved in various charities in Las Vegas. I would start donating some of your artwork, some of your murals to some of the more powerful charities in Las Vegas where all these executives participate and donate. Get your art into the city. Get it into some auctions. Donate some art to charity for auctions, for silent auctions. Support some of the charities that the CEOs and executives are involved in. On other ways, get your art in front of them. Local charities in Vegas. Vegas is a very charitable town. And the CEOs and and all the management of these companies are very involved in these charities. Second way to do it, get into Vegas through the back door. The back door is all the riverboat casinos, all the other casinos around the country. The Indian Reservation casinos, all of these casinos are connected to the casino industry. So if you can get a contract to do some artwork at a riverboat in St. Louis or something in Kansas City just to pick a smaller market, uh, through that work, you'll get noticed by the casino industry, and then you'll grow into Las Vegas. So I would look at smaller casinos in the Indian space or, or a smaller markets and break in that way, or I would look at getting my art seen through charities and Las Vegas events. Wishing you the best.
0: All right. Thank you.
2: All right, let's go over to. Uh, we've got John in Dubuque, Illinois. Uh, he wants to know how these filthy kitchens featured on your Bar Rescue episodes ever passed city health inspections. Ever, John, you there? Hey,
0: Mister Kapper, how are you
1: doing? I'm doing good, John. Boy, I've asked this question myself for years. So, what you're what you're asking me about is how to hell. With health codes and such, do these filthy kitchens exist without getting health inspected? Is that pretty much your question?
0: Yeah, my family's in the bar restaurant business. We would, we, we would never get away with that, ever.
1: What city are you in? East
0: Dubuque,
1: Illinois. East Dubuque, Illinois. That's interesting because it all comes down to individual health inspectors. And I'm with you, John. I find it just, just astonishing the depth to which failure goes. But, you know, unfortunately, this is our government at work. And health inspectors are individuals. They're not so heavily regulated and monitored, I find. There's a lot of leeway, right? They can let you get away with this, not let you get away with that. If you're not doing a lot of volume in your area, they'll tend to ignore you. And, and uh, it's one of our bigger weaknesses. And a lot of people get sick every year because of it. So, you know, I'll be the first one to call out these health departments. What you see on Bar Rescue, you should not see. And
0: yeah, I often wonder if, like, episode, the The health inspector for that bar watches your episode and thinks, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You
1: know what I mean? Yes. And there are episodes where I've brought them in, where I've actually brought health inspectors in. It was so outrageous Uh, 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 to to see what's happened. But you're exactly right. And at the end of the day, there can be as many police officers in the world, but if you want to steal a candy bar from a store, you're going to. And there can be a lot of health inspectors in the world. But if you want to run an irresponsible, dirty business, you're probably going to be able to get away with it to some degree. So it comes down to us, John. We've got to be the ones that are responsible and set the examples. And we've got to call out the ones that don't. And that's what I hope I'm doing in Bar Rescue. Yeah,
2: well, you do. That's for sure. It's a great show.
1: Thank you, buddy. Keep calling out people who see this, and I'll keep calling them out on my end, okay? And we got to get these
2: right, health inspectors
1: care. to do their jobs.
2: Thank you, John. Bye-bye.
1: Well, this is, I think, my fourth podcast. I'm going to lose count pretty soon. So to me, the most important lesson in this week's podcast is don't give up. Don't do strategic quitting. Understand dreams aren't really dreams. They're goals. And if anybody can attain them, you can. So there's no strategic quitting. There's no giving up. There's only being passionate and going forward and having fun, man. That's why we're here. So I want you to do something for me. Please hit subscribe at Apple Podcast. Go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you can hear brand new episodes every Tuesday. I want you to get my podcast downloaded automatically. I also want you to follow me, John Taffer on Facebook, at John Taffer on Twitter, John Taffer on Instagram, or you can email me anytime you want at podcast at johntaffer.com. And I really want to hear from you. Send me questions, comments, what you'd like to talk about on the show. Any input you want to give me, I'd love to hear it, because this podcast is all about you guys, not me. Talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer
1: on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review.